74% of Catholics said it's okay to live together before marriage, even if you have no intention of marrying that person. And that is dead wrong. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your season of Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I'm joined today with Dave Coffee Cup Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? That was, <laughs> that was lame. terrible. I, so lame. It was like literally nothing but a blank wall. <laughs> blank the, wall. You know, you could have gone to our email. I love it when you know, so oh, many yeah. listeners have sent in great names. So just so people understand what's happening right now, we are in a courtyard by Marriott near the Pittsburgh airport. I have to check out in exactly one hour and 13 minutes. So we got to get this episode completely done. But we're just, you know, we've been going since what, 9 a.m.? Yeah. 9 a.m. is when you came yeah. over. So yeah. you're about 40 minutes away. So Dave has to get up early, get his in laws in town so that they can watch the kids. And he has to drive uh, 40 minutes to me. And now we're recording. You'd think I'd be ready, prepared. Like, I don't have to go anywhere, but <laughs> your kids aren't here. My kids aren't here. All the thing, all the drama. But I, my brain does not work in hotels. That's funny. It does not work Do in know, hotels. This is what I found, mm, please, recently. Please. And maybe this is what's affecting you. Is I used to schedule every minute of my life. Yeah. And then since Amber passed away, I have no schedule. So now I can't remember anything on my <laughs> schedule. Not at all. I miss everything. I like it's a mess. It's so funny you say that because I had a call arranged yesterday at 5 30 p.m. And you and I missed it and I sent it right to voicemail because I was watching YouTube and I totally forgot it was a work call. Because my my iPhone is a little bit generous in labeling things spam risks. Oh really? That I then I'll get a voicemail and I'm like, oh that's the friend that is calling from the church. Like why is that a spam <laughs> risk? So anyway, I think that's ATT more than the iPhone. But um I'm just like that. Now that I don't work a nine to five and I work for that man as you, which let me tell you, holy moly, I love it. I, I knew you would. Love I knew it. You would. They just did an event Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for that man is you for all these guys to come down and do additional training and stuff. And I came during the small group keynotes and stuff. So they're focusing on building up the small group ministry and all this stuff. Cause no matter what organization I've been a part of life team, you know, that man is you all these different community groups type stuff. Small groups are what people say is the worst thing about that program or the best. Or the best, right. And, and that's the deal. <laughs> I'm the one who says it's the worst. So yeah. Well, no, meaning you can have a bad experience or you can have a great right, experience. Right, right, And for a lot of times, what I found with adults is that the adults, whatever group you're in, it's like, we're, hey, we're just going to have a, we're going to break out into groups of six and we'll have a conversation. And it's like, you need more training. You, right. you seriously need training because you're going to go off topic. People are going to be offensive. One person's going to dominate. Other people are going to check out. Like you need to be able to understand this. And the more I've gotten into the mission and the actual content of that man is you. So they sent me up with an account and I just went through and I've been, I called them up and I'm like, you got to put these videos on double speed. Give me the ability to click it. Yeah. And they did. And uh, so I've been pounding through all the videos and I'm like, oh, this is what I realize is Often what we do at the parish is we create programs that are conveyor belts of Christianity. Right. You need sacramental prep. Right. You need this, you know, that. Right. What I realized about that man is you, because it's completely detached from sacraments and stuff like that, is it is a program to help you do discipleship. Okay. It's not discipleship that then gets reduced to a program. Okay. And so for the small group ministry, for men to think, like, oh, yeah, just break into groups of eight and go through the the two questions and then you're done. It's like, no, 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 no. That's where you're getting it wrong. What you need to do is assign men 
to one group. You need to have them go to that group every time they show up so that you can build relationships with okay. the small group leader. Okay. And the small group leader, you need to form, you need to be pouring yourself into the leader so they can form these men. And then I read to them the trump card of all trump cards, which is Second Timothy chapter 2. Verses one and two. Right. And for those of you who don't know, basically St. Paul says, you're Timothy, the bishop. You're my son. I've trained you in the faith. Now you need to go find men who can hear the word of God and be trained in it and who can teach other men, right? right. So in the Second Timothy 2.2 is what all these Protestant groups quote when they talk about discipleship. And it all boils down to the question, where's your men? Right, where where are the men or for women? Where's your women? Where are the people that you're actively discipling in the faith? People who are immature, but who have said yes. And how are you bringing them further up and further in? Yeah, and not immature in a bad way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just meaning new, yeah, right? Yeah. How, how how can you take them from being a rookie to being proficient to being a saint? Yeah. And the only way you can do that is if you're at, at the very least at the next level above them, <laughs> right? Like, right. You know, for a lot of people, you know, the faith gets reduced to a bunch of knowledge about theology. And that's not true. That's not the way of the Lord Jesus. The way can only be handed down. Yeah. You, anyone can read a book about theology, but living the mode, right? And so for these men, one guy made this comment. He said, I didn't really want to come to this meeting. A buddy of mine, he was there the next day. He goes, I didn't really want to come to this meeting because I heard that Houston has a lot of hurricanes. He goes, but little did I know I was about to be attacked by Hurricane Gomer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that is literally the greatest endorsement I've ever had. But um, yeah, like that, that understanding, like recontextualize small group as discipleship is so important. And this spills over in our marriage conversation because we need to disciple people out of bad mentalities and into biblical mentalities of what it means to be married. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, again, stemming from our last episode, we talked about contraception. This is going to be a major focus of an evangelist, particularly like in a parish or something like that. It is a major, major focus for people who are DREs, directors of evangelization. You have to get good at this. And the first thing to understand, I think, is to understand the culture that we're living in, where the massive amount of people that you meet, right? I think one of priests described it as nine out of every 10 couples that come to him for marriage are already cohabitating. Yeah. This is a major, major problem. And both spiritually and philosophically, we can make arguments for this, but even just practically, right? We're starting to see the writing on the wall about what life looks like for those who cohabitate before marriage as opposed to those who don't. There is a big difference between perception and reality when it comes to cohabitation. Okay, Almost everyone who is a young adult today believes it is just common sense to trial run marriage right. because right. marriage and now, you know, with the manosphere, red pill matrix society, men are much more afraid of marriage, much less likely to want to get married because men are punished by the American legal system. If there is a divorce, oh. right? Eight out of 10. I think the statistic is now eight out of 10 was seven out of 10. I think it's eight out of 10 marriages that end in divorce 
end because the woman initiates it. Oh, wow. I didn't. And the number one reason is irreconcilable differences, which means essentially no fault divorce. So it's not because of domestic abuse. It's not because of neglect. It's not because of spousal abandonment. Wow, that's terrible. It's because women have fallen out of love. And one of the when you hear like in op-ed pieces and stuff, there's a standard meme. A meme, that phrase meme doesn't just mean a funny picture on the internet. It means a mental virus, like a thought virus. And you realize like people say the same thing, even if they're from diverse backgrounds and stuff. It's like how it spreads like wild fire and one of those things is when women who get divorced speak well of their ex and they say i still love him i'm just not in love with him you hear that language a hollywoodism yeah, right, you know kind of thing right. but that is devastating and what it does to a man we are only now seeing the mental health and social health repercussions of it and what it does to marriages what divorce does to marriages I mean, it, it almost always, especially if it happens in their in their 30s and 40s, it's so expensive to get a divorce that it will plunge the couple into poverty now that they're separated. And it will plunge that kiddo into poverty because now you have to accommodate two living situations right, instead right, of one. Right. And if the husband wants to be involved in the life of the child, right, he has to have, he can't have a one bedroom apartment. He has to have a two bedroom apartment or he has, you know, so you layer on all of these economic considerations that now, because the purpose of marriage is not just a religious thing. No, it's a legal thing. It's a public thing. It's a for the common good thing. And so it's right and good for societies to uphold and propose and promote marriage. So taxes and all of that stuff, that becomes part of the process of dissevering unions. Are you saying... Seven out of 10 divorces happen because the woman initiates and the majority of cases of those. So within the seven out of 10, the majority of those cases are not because of spousal abuse, adultery. It's because of irreconcilable differences, which means we fell out of love. It's just not working. We're incompatible. Wow. Now, conflict, yes. Usually before what precedes is high conflict. So constant fighting. No, it's not even like you're saying like it's the woman's fault. I mean, there could be a million reasons that the husband is causing this to happen. It's just strange. Well, this is part of women empowerment is divorce had gone. So before first wave feminism, women couldn't get divorced. It was very difficult for divorce at all until 1930s, the United States and and the UK introduced no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce, like beforehand, you had to get a legal order to allow you to divorce. And a judge could be like, nope, doesn't meet the grounds, gone. Yikes. With no-fault divorce, they said, yeah, you could get divorced for any reason, right? So Chesterton opposed that. The great line from Chesterton is, no-fault divorce, I'm not afraid it'll lead to frivolous divorces. I'm afraid it'll lead to frivolous marriages. marriages exactly. And that's exactly that's what's 100% happened. That's 100% what happened. So th- this is the big war that g- that's going on in the so-called men of rights sphere yeah. is men are paralyzed now that even if they love the woman, they're scared that if they marry them and then the woman divorces them two years later, because statistically that's when it's like 18 months and then seven years are like the two major times when people get divorced, that it can rock you so much. Like you're going to be depressed. You're going to hate your life, all these things. And then she's going to get a portion of your money for alimony. And then on top of that for child support that often that plunges men into the poorhouse, yeah. right? So people like these are cultural things that yeah. once you separate sex from babies, all of a sudden, these other issues, when you when you stop holding up marriage and surround it as a precious and sacred institution, all of a sudden, it becomes like, what do you mean sacred? 
It's not sacred. It's just an arrangement. Yeah. We right. can, it's a we contract. Can, what's the difference between marriage and cohabitating? If we love each other and we agree right. to raise the kids right. Right. and it's like, okay, well, let's talk about that. So one like the stats that you find, right? Less people are getting married today than in the 1970s. In the 1970s, yeah. 76.5 people out of every 1,000 in the United States of America was married. That number now is 34.9. Wow. So marriages, yeah. So if you imagine it is a slope downwards that shows no sign of abating. But for cohabitation, now the statistics are a little bit different. So it's millions. It represents millions. So basically in the 1970s, there were 500,000 people who were cohabitating, okay, living together. What you're saying in America? In America, in a romantic relationship, okay. but not married. Okay. About 500,000. 500 is like 65,000. Okay. And by uh, 2010, that number was 7.5 million, right? So it is on an exponential increase. It's a hockey stick, if right. you think of the, the charting. It's a hockey stick up, right? It's the iPhone sales, right? Year after year, it's right. that hockey stick up. Right. And marriage is the slope down, right? It's not exponential decline, but it is a downward decline. So when you start to see this and you say, well, more people are, and, and there's a, one guy that I was listening to, and he seems to be very sensible in a lot of things, but about marriage and relationships and dating, like the seriousness of it. Okay. But then he said, it just seems bonkers to me. And I believe that was the term he used to get married to a person without living, living together first. first. And that's <laughs> perception versus reality. Because the reality is you have a higher, not a lower increased chance of getting divorced if you live together right. beforehand. Right. Right. There is a higher risk, a massive increased risk in domestic violence to women and children and sexual abuse of children if you cohabitated but then got married. Right, so that that thing still exists. What? Like, even if you get married, that's crazy. Yeah, because cohabitate. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, yeah. And then cohabitating couples versus, and this is all self-reporting. Pew Research Forum in I want to say it was 2019 said that unmarried couples rated themselves as less happy yeah, than I married couples. Yeah, I've heard that many times. Yeah, almost every time they take that step. It's, it's yeah, just it's, it's, unbelievable. Yeah, and here's the 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 probably the underlying reason why. 41% of men who are cohabitating say they aren't fully committed to the relationship. Yeah, of course. And 52% of men, 39% of women say they are almost certain that this relationship they're currently in won't last. Oh, my goodness. So 41% aren't fully committed. 52% of men say, yeah, this, this isn't going to last. And, and almost 40% of women say it's not going to last. Then why do people get into these entanglements of cohabitation? I had a friend that I was working on trying to disciple and she ditched all of this religious stuff and she met a guy who was horrible and they, and she moved in. Now you could tell she was attaching for psychological reasons, not for love Okay. To this person. Okay. And so the last. Well, like stability or something like that? No, or? like my, I need to feel loved by someone okay. even if they don't okay. really love me. Okay. Right. Uh, it was very much a self-abusive kind of thing. So I sat down with this person and the last conversation I had with them was, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This guy's awful for you. He's a dweeb. He's a jerk. This is not going to last. And she just glazed eyed looking at me and I said, the reason why marriage is so important is because it's hard to get out of, even with no-fault divorce. Yeah. It takes a year like right. to go through all the legal proceedings, all the fighting and all this stuff. And I said, this is too easy to get hurt. Right. So she ignored me. 
how dare you? You know, I got all the moral recriminations of a, you know, someone who's treating themselves like an elite or whatever. And this guy, what he began doing was opening credit cards in her name with her social that he got stacked up tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt, maxed out like three credit cards and then began physical abuse. Gosh. And then when that is hard to hear. So then when she finally got it now, she has a good family, good background. So she woke up quicker than what many women do. Okay. And she got out. Because a lot of women feel paralyzed. What, what, you know, what kept you there was like a trending hashtag about abuse. And all these women, they share like, well, I, I stayed for my kids. I stayed for this. I stayed okay. for that, okay. right? She finally, she got out. Her dad had to physically threaten this guy. And then like three months later, the creditors started calling. And all this stuff. He tried to murder their dog. Like all these like horrible things. Oh my goodness. The credit. And she's like, what are you talking about? I never opened that card. I never did this. I never did that. And he's like, well, here's all the stuff. And it's destroyed her financially, emotionally, all of these things. Now, obviously that's not everyone's experience of cohabitation. But what you're saying is, and what the, the article of these studies and the psychologist that kind of backs it up, what he's explaining is cohabitation is easy. It's easy to get into. It's easy to get out of. It's so low stakes that people who are not mature enough for marriage. I mean, think about this. 40% of women are in relationships with men where they think "Eh, it's not going to last. So what are we doing? What games are we playing? (laughs) And the psychologist, I can't remember. So it was like on, on having happy marriages, something like that. He says that it builds up a lie that romance is what marriage is about. Right. And sex or the promise of sex, you know, anticipation, the date, the wooing, whatever, is the essence of romance. Right. You've turned your marriage into a rom-com, basically. Yeah. Or, or your, your relationships in this rom-com where he constantly, or a fairy tale where he's constantly trying to sweep you off your feet and it's all romantic and all this stuff. But then what happens is when the thrill is gone, you feel trapped yeah. into the cycle of a bad relationship. But marriage is, no, no, no. It's ordered towards the procreation and education of children. So... Are you the kind of person I want to have a baby with? Do I think the world would be a better place with miniature versions of you and me running around? Right? Like there's so much weight to the decision of marriage. And because if you attach marriage to babies, there's almost no weight if you only view marriage as a domestic relationship based on emotional reciprocity. How much less so is cohabitation where it's not even a, it's barely even a domestic relationship. And yet, even there, you're training yourself for divorce. Yeah, of course you are. It's a, it's a co- the common theme I'm hearing now uh, often is, do we have sexual chemistry? Like yeah. that you have to test that out before marriage. Yeah, it's, that's such a ridiculous thing to say. If you're telling me that someone could cohabitate and and things that would be like massive character flaws go unchecked, like increase then there's no possible way to mitigate like sexual charisma or something like that. Right. I mean, like or to, to mitigate like a problem in, in that chemistry that you have. Right. Yeah. Like this is, this is insane for people to make these decisions, but more than anything, I think it does is it creates a situation where deep down, sometimes really deep down, you're just using each other. Right. And oftentimes it's a contractual relationship. And even if the contract isn't signed, right, even if it's not in writing, what they're doing is they're joining together practicalities and having sex without the consequence of eternality, right, of without a forever commitment. And 
deep down, like, come on, you're, you're not going to be happy with that. The other thing I don't understand, I guess it's like this whole rabbit hole thing, right? This idea like that you're, you know, you mentioned turning your marriage into like a rom-com. Like they have to know that there's something wrong there, right? Like it's not real. There's a, maybe a passion or a thrill or something like that that's real for a moment. But they have to realize like, hmm, this isn't the fairy tale that I thought about, right? Don't you think? I would hope they'd have that clarity. Yeah. But I, one of the things I've noticed in working with young adults is there's this energy and excitement and enthusiasm behind the next step. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah, right. And, and, so, I, and, and unfortunately nowadays there could be – Eight million next steps. Yeah. The engagement party. Right. The, you know, like you have all this. But that moment where you're discussing whether or not to move in is in typical American culture. It's because you've been having a sexual relationship for so long. Right. That she's already staying over your place so often or he's already staying right. over so your place. So why not just. So why not just do it and save money? <laughs> you, know, why, you know, we live in we live in a city. Why not, you know, one apartment instead of paying for two. And all this stuff. But it's it's funny. It's because the danger is you're only halfway yoking your finances together. Right. Right. And then you get these bizarre situations where they do a budgeting is your mine and ours where it's like, I got my money and this month I'm going to pay mortgage and you get your money and next month you're going to pay mortgage. Dude, that is nuts. And that is, it's nuts because, but it's also smart if you're not really planning on living with this oh, person. Sure, yeah. So if you live in this, I'm right, waiting. Mixing your finances if you're not married is insane. It's insane, which is what ended up happening to the friend I was telling yeah, you about. Right. So the, the other element of it is within marriage, marriage safeguards that level of stability so that you can grow together, right? And getting into marriage is such serious business. And everyone knows that. That's why cohabitating people, they, they cohabitate because they say they have this like, lofty view of marriage that it's like, well, if I, I got to be like basically perfect and I got to meet the perfect person, right. but okay. Number one, that's not true. You'll never meet the perfect person. If you do don't marry them because you'll ruin them. But the other thing is because we've built it up so loftily, everything is a trial run, which means cohabitation is I'm leaving myself room for something better to come of along. Course, right. And if you have that mentality, which is appropriate when you're dating, that mentality is somewhat appropriate when you're dating. Even when you're engaged, you can still break off the engagement. But if you're married, you, you've scuttled the ships. You've burned the bridges. Right. You're saying, I'm here and I'm not going back. That's the point. So in the church, we have what we call the traditional four goods of marriage. St. Augustine in the year 401 wrote, on the goods of conjugal life. And he gave four things. St. Thomas Aquinas talked about him. Cassie Canubi, the catechism paragraph 1643 to 1654 talks about it. It's permanence, right? Me and you for life till death do us part. And that creates the environment wherein you can actually be yourself. Yeah. Cause we also Trust, know right. you can date. You're, you're a different person when you're dating than when you're married, right? Not me, buddy. Not me. <laughs> Come on. I eavesdrop on some of those. I got my uh, croissant with egg and bacon and sat down with y'all. No, but like you have this tendency that you can do that for a year or two years of sure, of sure. the romantic high sure. and all that stuff. It used to be like a sign of pride, right? Like that wives would like it if their men filled out after like in the 50s <laughs> and 40s and stuff like that. Uh, oh, that's a beautiful thing. Um, so you have permanence, you have partnership, right? Sex is not just about having as many babies as possible. It's also about the building up of the bond between the husband and the yeah. wife, mutual support, the union that you provide one another, the comfort in these difficulties of life, all of this stuff. Also fidelity, being faithful. There is virtue in marriage. 
that is not accessible to the single life. And so the idea of being faithful to one spouse, you and you alone till death do us part, right? That, that emphasis spiritually, mentally. Yeah. I, I had a friend who his wife accused him of having an emotional affair and he's like, I am not. Yeah. And then she goes, Google it. And she was so mad. She stormed out of the house. So he Googled it. And then he called her up. And he says, you need to come back. We need to talk about this. She came back and he's like, you're hundred percent right. I'm having an emotional affair. I Googled it. I am totally doing this with this woman. And they had this honest conversation and, and so he cut everything off. He's like, I didn't even know I was doing this. Yeah. But what, what are we doing? We're looking for someone outside of our, our partner in order to fulfill the needs that only he or she should do. And yeah. that's dangerous. So fidelity and then fruitfulness. And that's obviously order towards babies to have fruitfulness within marriage. Now you have couples again, who struggle with infertility, right? And it's not like they have a lesser marriage. What will end up happening is the fruitfulness of their marriage will be manifest in other in ways. In similar way, right? Yeah. Um, I have friends who have struggled with lifelong infertility, and they are the world's greatest foster parents. They foster to adopt, I think, four kids, five kids now so far. But that whole movement of their heart is like, yeah, we're parents and we're great together and we could be great for some sad, you know, foster kid that's getting passed around in some overburdened system. We could give at least one person a chance at a better life. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember if you're working with couples, there are stories like what Gomer just told that are real. And, and this is a real thing. Infertility is a real thing. Yeah. But we also haven't even come close, the healthcare industry, to helping couples in this way. I mean, I, I, I know stories of people who did Every like shiny kind of like newfangled treatment, whatever they could to have a baby and nothing worked. And one meeting with Dr. Hilgers, which, oh, yeah. you know, and literally they were pregnant within a month. Like, so, I mean, there also is sometimes where it's just like, we're missing the mark here on, on care for that. So. Yeah. And which we're going to address in a later episode with experts. But when we think about this and the relationship between cohabitation and marriage, you have to realize that the fundamental social structure within cohabitation is not trial marriage because a marriage necessarily involves a lifelong permanent fidelity. And that is a matrix. That is an organization. That is a process and a, a system that you put yourself in that you can't emulate outside of permanent fidelity because in cohabitation, the trial nature of itself is what invalidates the claim. And so for people who think I have to be compatible above all with this person, you think marriage is going to be easy yeah, <laughs> because it's just, well, once we're compatible and it's never easy. Then it'll be easy, right? Yeah. It's never easy, but it's good. And that's the thing that you learn in marriage is that even the difficult times can be good. Right. And that's the lesson that compatibility only or chemistry only or is never going to teach. Yeah. It's never going to teach you. There is something to be said for like the wild at heart story, right? That you win the person, right? Yeah. And if it's like perfect compatibility, yeah. you don't win them. You know, you don't, it's, that's who, who needs that? You know, what you want is to struggle. You want that, you know, and you want to have the beautiful love story that withstands the outside problems and, and the more practical issues. Right. I mean, you want that. Yeah. Two parent home, even with high conflict is better than a one parent home because kids can see even in a high, and I don't mean abuse, right. Yeah, just, okay. You know, kids see that even though mommy and daddy have their differences and sometimes very loud differences. They, they still stay, stay, together. They stay together. And that staying together is not just like, well, they stay together just because they were more afraid of being apart. No, 
that they still loved each other even in the midst of the conflict. Yeah, right, right. Now, better than that would be to have a low conflict home, but still you can see that the goods of marriage spill out upon and down the generations. So the Catholic understanding of marriage, it's lifelong, it's a partnership, it's faithful, and it's fruitful. And that beautiful union becomes the context wherein the woman who in most societies, kind of up until now, have been the most vulnerable, have been the most unprotected, have been the most fragile, especially when pregnant. And then you look at children, how often that they have been used and abused and misused and maltreated and all of these things that the home is meant to provide stability and protection for both. Right. Right. And here's the deal. That home was not just mom, dad, and 1.7 kids, right? It was the extended family. It was the neighborhood. It was the town. Most people in the world died within five miles of where they were born. So that means they knew everyone and everyone knew them. Yeah. That meant that they had community support and relatives. Women were never alone in the home. Their sisters were there. The spinster aunts who never got married still lived in the home. And so you have this layers upon layers. The reason why they're called spinsters is they did the spinning at home of the farm. Like I'm the just going to apologize for anyone out there. That's not a derogatory term. Sure. I will fight you. I will fight you. So anyway, we wanted to have this moment because cohabitation is is sky high popular and the perception is this helps us prepare for marriage 74 percent of catholics according to a pew research poll found out 74 percent of catholics said it's okay to live together before marriage even if you have no intention of marrying that person and that is dead wrong all right so so let's talk about this in marriage prep goer because yeah. this is where it's really difficult. These are terrible, hard conversations, yeah. right? And to be honest with you, most priests that I know don't do this conversation all that well. Okay. Right? So a couple comes in and they say, well, what are your addresses? Well, we have the same address. And usually there's a joke there, right? Yeah. Oh, you guys are doing this backwards, huh? Like that kind of thing, right? <laughs> it's like the worst situation yeah. possible. We need to be equipped and prepared to have the conversation with them of, what do you do? Okay, so what do you do when a couple comes to you for marriage or for any reason and they're cohabitating, right? Now, there's practical considerations and mm -hmm. there's spiritual considerations. Spiritual is going to trump the practical, okay? The first thing is stop. Like, you can stop this. You don't have to do this. Now, that might say something like, well, we bought a house together and we have no other place to go and we have those things. The next thought is, well, you could live as brother and sister in that house, right? This is a lofty call, and so you have to pitch marriage as a lofty ideal, which it is, right? It's a great, wonderful thing that you're willing to sacrifice for, and so we're going to ask you to make this big sacrifice. I mean, what are your conversations with oh, That's exactly what I tell them to do. Okay. I was like, are you living together? And then they get immediately bashful, right? Right. So they've been on the defensive about this, all their friends, no one cares, and then they meet church guy. Right. And then they're like, Wee, and they get all six shades of red, maybe even 50 shades of red. I don't know. And uh, they say that. And then I say, okay, here's the deal. I say, you, are, you already know what the church teaches about premarital sex, right? You're not married, so you can't engage in sex. And I said, the church isn't saying that because it's afraid of sex or thinks it's dirty. It's just like a fire. When it's in your fireplace, it's awesome. When it's in your stove, it's great. When it's on the couch and the carpet and, you know, your roof, it's a terrible thing. So what we want to be able to do is to put sex in its proper place and context. So for the next X amount of months until you're married, you are to absolutely abstain from sex. Go into different rooms, sleep in different rooms, and you might think I'm being crazy. 
But I can't tell you how many times I've had couples who say it was like we had a second honeymoon. And then I tell the story of people graduating from Franciscan who get married four and a half seconds after they graduate. And they talk about how depressing it is to stay to the end of the wedding reception and not want to just dart out. I'll never get this girl saying this. It was so depressing because they've lived together. My sister, she lived with her boyfriend for like six years before they got married. And they were there. They were the last ones to leave their wedding reception. And I said, well, why is that depressing? Like, don't they want to see everyone, all that stuff? She's like, yeah, but there's no thrill that they're waiting for ah, at the end of that that's night. Interesting. And I thought of that. And that was told to me probably my sophomore year. I thought of that until I got married about 10 years later. And how funny it was, like, my household, AMBG, we all, we we would chant a line from Sirac. Uh, music. so, so we're ridiculous. So, we're so ridiculous. So but ridiculous. we'd form a tunnel, and we would chant, music and wine pleases the soul, but not like conjugal love. And we would chant that every time. And the couple, remember. Yes. And it was, and we did that at my wedding. We did that at my buddy's wedding, like, all that stuff. That we go into the limo, or you go into the car to drive off, or you go into the elevator if you're having the reception at the hotel. And everyone else stays in parties because now you, it's like the Jewish ritual. You've entered the hopah, the wedding tent. The the apocalypse. The apocalypse, the unveiling. It's it's, it's such an awkward thought, but it's also awesome. Yeah, but couples can get that again. It's kind of like born again virginity, right? Like it's this notion of like, you're going to make this gift special again. And in order to do that, you need to absolutely without hesitations and without any like waffling, no compromise. That's the word I was looking for. Without any compromises, you need to have absolute sexual abstinence go to confession today yeah and i tell i mean i absolutely tell them this and no matter how awkward it might be i say like they they look at me it's not fair not to say yeah but yes you're depriving them of a gift and i'm like listen you can push back argue with me right now i'm okay with that like i understand that you might not have the sexual ethic of the church i said but if you do i'm not going to marry you in the church i'm not going to let you go through if if you have zero desire to live according to the teaching of the church and I was like, and just wait till I get you for the prep classes. This is in the meetings, right? Wait till I get you in the prep classes. When we go through contraception, when we go through lust, when we go through pornography, and we go through these things, right? I'm I'm happy to go. Yeah, I and I always like try to sell the the partnership aspect. Yeah. in that time. Do you sing Zac Efron's line from High School Musical One? We're all in this together. I've never seen that before in my life, and your pop culture references alienate me in this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, fair enough. Fair enough. I read old books. No, but I would say to them like date again. Yeah. Right. Because the truth is a lot of them come because they're like, well, it's been this long. Yeah. Might it's as well. time to do the right, the right yeah. thing. Might yeah. as well. And it's like, whoa, where's the romance in that? Where's the, you know, where's, yeah. where's the fairy tale in that? Right. So bring it back and come back. Right. Yeah. And so for them, they, again, they're missing virtue for the sake of law, for the sake of obedience. And, and it's like a very half-hearted begrudging obedience. And it's like, no, 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 this thing can actually be life-giving. And I want to tell you about it. I want to show you how it can be life-giving. So I do the same thing. And people don't understand this. I actually had a priest who's a chancellor of a diocese shocked at what I told them in either marriage prep or my meetings in RCIA. I remember you me this. Yeah. yeah. And he said to me, well, why, why, you know, we tell people, get your marriage fixed, then come to RCIA. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, because they're not able to live chastely. That is a horrible thing right. for and so someone I to said, say. Are you? I was so mad. I was, are you? What? What are you talking about? Well, you're a priest. You can't have any sexual. Are you able to live chastely, or is that too difficult a burden for you? And he, <laughs> he, he like was. That. Oh yeah, he was livid. And he, and I said, well, do you see what you're saying? And he, and he said, well, it's different for a couple that is used to it 
to then refrain. I no. said, well, JP two actually says that in love and responsibility. I know, that but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Right. It's absolutely not impossible. Anyone who's ever had a wife with a medical issue and you have to refrain, exactly. you know, right. And uh, I know this, you know this, but the experience of abstinence for a prolonged period of time, I told him, I said, do you understand that it fosters love for the Eucharist? What do you mean? People understand I am saving uh-huh. this because I believe the Eucharist, and this is what one woman said to me, four years of abstinence yep. before their annulments went through and they got they were able to do all this stuff. She said, my love for the Eucharist is greater than my love for our marriage bed. And he agreed. The hard part is when one of the spouses doesn't agree. Right. That's That's where a lot of pastoral concern comes in. But that's where you can jump in and try to, disciple yeah. the one who doesn't agree. Right. I've done that a bunch of times. Yeah. And I've had cases that are very hard where the man or the woman won't meet with me. And so basically what we do is we deal with the annulment stuff and then we do a radical sanation where it goes back to the root of the right. marriage and stuff. But honestly, the last couple I was working with, the wife said, I will never, if you convert to Catholicism, just understand you will never have uncontracepted sex Wow, with me because I reject explicitly reject that teaching of the Catholic church wow. and I will not stop using my, I think she had an IUD. Okay. And he said, how, what do I say to her in that? And I said, well, you know, you, you can't oblige someone else's conscience. Right. I said, but I'll give you literature on why IUDs are making her irritable, right. gain weight, right. you know, all of these things. IUDs are one of the worst health things right. you can do. And he's like, okay, that's the only thing. It's not going to be a theological argument that'll sway her. It might literally be a medical one. So there has never been a couple cohabitating. And I'm blessed with deacons at St. Anthony's who did the majority of the one-on-one marriage prep who have no problem talking about this. Deacon Tom Vigner, who like marriage is everything to him. Yeah. (laughs) Literally everything. He has never given a homily where it's not about marriage. It was his uh, body that they wrote about, the the theology of the body. Yeah, yeah, it was the theology of Deacon Tom's body. But Deacon Tom, he would say this that I thought was so powerful. He would say, you know, he'd talk to the couple and he would ask them, you know, you need to go to mass and you stop having sex. And the next time he met with them, he'd be like, okay, have you gone to mass and have you stopped having sex? Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah, and they'd be like, oh, ha, 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 ha. and he goes, okay, we're going to meet again. And when we meet again, I'm going to ask you the same questions. And don't lie to me because it's stupid to lie to me. Don't don't lie. Right. And he said, but the answer better be yes, that we stopped having sex. And yes, we have been going to mass. And he goes, because you're living something radically new, which yeah. is Christian marriage. Right. And then he, then he does his guarantee. And it's good news, not bad news. Right. And he says, I'm going to give you my guarantee. My guarantee is, and this is, this is such Deacon Tom's personality. He goes, you will never get divorced if you do what I say. And if you have a bad spot in your marriage, you call me and free of charge, I will fly to wherever you are and I will do <laughs> marriage counseling <laughs> until awesome. it's all right. Until it's all resolved. Like he will, I will help you in this regard. And he says this because that's that accompaniment aspect that gets left out of a program. Right. Right. It's right. like, no, no, no. I'm involved. This yeah. is the discipleship yeah. model. This doesn't stop. Right. Yeah. You need to understand that marriage is hard and I'm willing to invest in your marriage. Right. That is, I think, what's missing from much of our clergy when it comes to, and in our laity, uh, I, sh- I should say, it, when it comes to marriage prep. Yeah, the, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And we're starting to see, I don't know if you've been following this organization, Communio. They, they support marriages and they'll go into like a diocese or a city and they'll like basically support marriage programming for free for churches. And uh, I, I knew the, the, the guy who, I think he's the founder 
the statistics that they show are unbelievable mm. that basically, you know, we always talk about like silver bullets for evangelization, yeah. like this marriage. Is it, yeah. Exactly. Marriage work. Marriage work is a, you know, could be a silver bullet for evangelization. Yeah. And Paradisius Day, which is the parent organization that that man is you is in. Right. They have a thing called missionaries to the family. And their whole thing is you take a couple and you basically give them, it's like a year or two of intense training on discipleship, the gospel, marriage, sacraments, like all of it. Okay. So, and then they go to a parish and they just try to disciple married couples. What? Yeah. Are they missionaries? Is that their job? Yeah. No. That's full time. Are that's you it. kidding yeah, me? Yeah. Missionaries to the family. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. But it, I mean, think about the level of commitment. I mean, yeah. and so most of the people who do it are older couples who are retired yeah. and who have the time to be able to I do like this. That. And they go and, and that's the thing is like, if you, if your parish partners with them, you have these couples that will meet in the homes of your parishioners and do this stuff and train them up and, and, and accompany them. And it really is important, right? To have someone who walks with you is so dang important. Email us EKSB at essentialpress.com and we'll be right back. Did you know that your personal style can aid in understanding your worth? My name is Lillian Fallon, and I am the author of Theology of Style, Expressing the Unique and Unrepeatable You. And in this book, I dive into this very topic where we discuss how personal style is something that can actually help you grow in understanding in your worth and how you're made in the image of God. You can buy my book at ascensionpress.com forward slash theology of style. And we're back. So practical takeaways. I have one. What do you have? Well, my practical takeaway is invest in it now. Oftentimes marriage prep, marriage catechesis is like the thing that you put on the back burner Yeah, because it's happening, right? People are getting married. You already have something there. Yeah. So you put it on the back burner. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's it's like the same advice I give for perpetual adoration, right? Just do it now. Start it it right away. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. You don't have to be perfect in order to start doing it. My practical takeaway is paragraphs 1643 to 1654. Right, So it's 12 paragraphs of the catechism. Sit down, read it, go through it, and realize you two can implement this. My marriage prep, my convalidation prep, consists of me walking through all of the passages about marriage in the catechism, about family in the catechism, so God's view of of family, and then walking through the church's teaching on chastity and the sins against chastity and conjugal love. Yeah, And we just walk through that, and I just provide color commentary. That's basically exactly what Right. And you find that you can get just as much talking points as you can from some slick program or whatever, because that's what people are relying on. Let's let's have the video do it. The video is great at getting good content across, but the living, breathing human being to give the witness and to answer the questions they need that always. That's why would you say it's incarnational. I would. I would. <laughs> Just like marital love. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we will be back. We're going to continue looking at how to evangelize the culture with the master evangelist, Pope John Paul II, and his theology of the body. Stay tuned for more. Email us, EKSB at ascensionpress.com. God bless. Mm-hmm.